and uh, wonderful that you can be here and, uh, and I pray that um, this morning's message and service is a blessing to you all. It's an incredible portion of scripture, that one that we just read, and uh, it's one that um, demonstrates the reality of Christ and, and of his coming and it demonstrates something of incredible consideration particularly when you think that these disciples, each one of them, had mourned um, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd seen him and they witnessed him being crucified on this cross. And each one of them had been terribly distraught by it. And they had met together. And as they met together, they, um, they had also recognised that um, what, what were they to do? Where were, they to, where were they to go? They, they fled from him. If you remember the story, you remember the account when they came to take him, they ran away. They fled from him. Up until that point, it was we had Peter who said that he would die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have Peter of all people that came to deny him. And deny him not once, but, but three times. Get these things set up properly. This message this morning is simply titled, The Lord is Risen. These four words have an implication on not only us, but on the entire world. Because of not only what they say, but what they represent, what they mean. There's a passage here that I just want to, I just want to read again to you. Um, and it was in verse 30 of the text. And it says, And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how it was known of them in breaking of bread. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can only ask and pray to you, Lord, that you would be with me this morning and that you would be with each one of us. And that as we look at this text and we look at the scriptures that are here, I pray to you, Father, that it might glorify your name and that we may do that which is right concerning the risen Christ and what that means. I pray to you, Father, please be with each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. He is the single most important individual in history. Um, he is what history is, is all about. It began with him and it will end with him and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. So we're told even by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. We live our lives too often in neglect of him, yet he is our life. Deuteronomy 20, verse 30, verse 20. He is the beginning and the ending. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. Nothing in this world is more important than Him. And if He were not, then we would be not. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then no man will. Death would not be defeated. You and I would be yet in our sins and also without hope in this world. There would be no hope in the world apart from Christ. It's not possible to give life any consideration apart from him because he is the beginning and the beginner of it all. 
He is the very author of our lives and without him, life itself would have no meaning, no reason and no purpose. Life would be an empty vacuum. It would be a completely empty vacuum. It would be one that we're travelling through without hope and that's exactly how the world perceives itself today as it tries to live life apart from him. It's lost. It's lost. The world is completely lost. It, it, it staggers like a drunken man looking for a wall. This is what the world looks like today. It's trying and it's attempting to, to vie for life in all of its strength and yet it has no knowledge of where it's going because they have denied the Lord of life. Our breath is held in his hands, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. There is nothing in this world that would exist without him, for he is before all things and by him all things consist, Colossians 1.17. This is the reality. This is the reality. And the Lord is risen. That is the reality. And that is something that we will find even through this message this morning, that there is no provable fact more greater in history than the risen Christ, that he rose from the dead. There's implications to those four words. Hope is found within those four words. So too is purpose. So too is judgment, incidentally, as well as love, mercy and grace. Eternity is found in those four words. It might not seem like it. It might not seem like it. Perhaps you've, you've looked at those four words that were spoken and by those two disciples and you can't see its implication. But I can tell you that the implications are there. They are certainly there. They, the people who spoke those words knew the implication of them. Their complete lives were changed. It was transformed. Their lives were turned upside down as they turned the world upside down. They went from um, distraction and being distraught and being upset and saddened to all of a sudden having a purpose of life that they've never had before. Those four words transformed their lives transformed their lives completely every single person who heard those words understood their implication and their lives were a witness to it they were transformed they were changed there's no argument that's been made historically against the resurrection of christ that's been able to stand all the arguments to the contrary have been answered and all of those arguments have fallen in 1794, there was a volume published by the English clergyman William Pally, titled A View of the Evidences of Christianity. It was a work that was so successful in answering the revived denials of the resurrection of Christ that it became compulsory reading for any applicant to Cambridge University. And that required reading was there right up until the 20th century. One of the greatest sets of arguments defending the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ was the witness transformation of the disciples. In this alone, every single argument against the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ logically fell flat. But it kept on being revived again and again and again as if it was never answered. We see that today all the time. I read the writings of men like Richard Dawkins and I'm like, but that's been answered. That's been answered. That's been answered. That's been answered. You're arguing like a 16-year-old atheist that's never read a book. You know, all of these things have been answered, but they continue to revive those same arguments again and again because there's a new generation that comes through that's never heard the answers. 
the reality of Christ, the reality of his resurrection, uh, the miracle of the resurrection was confirmed again and again within the first 50 years of his death that this was a miracle. This was something that had certainly occurred. The Roman historical um, writer Tacitus wrote, within 30 years of Christ, testifies to the cruel persecution by Emperor Nero against the Christians. Now, this is within 30 years of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Christians were being clothed in animal skins, smeared with pitch and lined the streets in torch flame for the emperor to be able to ride dressed up as a charioteer through the streets of Rome. These, the, these things were done to these Christians who gave their lives for what they knew to be true, not what they knew to be a lie. They knew these things to be true. The testimonies of the Roman authors like Suetonius and Juvenal confirmed that within 31 years after Jesus' death, Christians were dying for their faith. From the writings of Pliny the Younger, Martial, Epictus and Marcus Aurelius, Philo and Josephus, it's clear that the believers voluntarily submitted to torture and death rather than renounce their faith. They had good news to share. They had good news to share with respect to eternity. They had good news to share with respect to their sin being washed away and they being cleansed and cleaned and they have a hope in heaven because of the resurrection of Christ. They testified to the truth of this and this is given to us in a historical record that is even outside of the Bible. They would not renounce their faith. Christians were suffering for their faith just as Jesus had spoken of. The early Christian writers like Clement and Hermas and Polycarp. Polycarp would have been, was, he knew John, the Apostle John. He knew the Apostle John. He, sta- he sat under his teaching. Ignatius mentioned, these all mentioned the sufferings of Christians they were undergoing because of their faith. They also bore witness to Christian believers that had adopted a completely new way of life. William Lane Craig in his book, The Sun Rises, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus writes this. <coughs> the early letters of Barnabas and Clement refer to Jesus' miracles and resurrection. Polycarp mentions the resurrection of Jesus and Irenaeus writes that as a young man he had heard Polycarp tell of Jesus' miracles. Ignatius mentions the resurrection. Quadratus reports that people were still living who had been healed by Jesus. Justin Martyr refers to the miracles of Jesus. No trace of a non-miraculous story exists. That an original non-miraculous story should be completely lost and another miraculous story replace it goes beyond any known example of corruption of even oral tradition. Not to speak of written historical transmission. The Gospels themselves indicate that the story they were telling was not their own invention but that it was already widely known and told. This is the story of the resurrection of Christ in history. This is the story of what we see pronounced within history by writers outside of the Bible. But within the Bible, we see a consistent teaching within the Scriptures with regards to the resurrection of Christ. The story about the Bible and the New Testament isn't something that's like Alexander the Great, for example. The writings that we have of Alexander the Great, the first known writings that we have was 300 years after his death. The gospel accounts are nothing like that. They were written within the lifetime of the people who witnessed Christ. We've got 
three examples of Caesar's, Gaelic, Caesar's wars, his, his wars, and those three examples conflict one with another. And yet these ones here, these gospel accounts, we've got thousands of them. Thousands of them in the Greek language. We've got more of them again in the Egyptian, the Coptic language. We've got more of them translated in other languages around the known world at that time. The evidences with regards to the New Testament is absolutely astounding. But there was one individual who actually decided to write an argument against the whole idea that the resurrection was a fabrication that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was some sort of conspiratorial effort as we see in the New Testament. We see that in the New Testament. Tell them that the disciples came and stole the body away. That's in the New Testament. That's what the Pharisees said, that we will secure the, the, the soldiers who kept the tomb. There were guards posted at the tomb. But the disciples came in the middle of the night and they stole the body away and then after that they fabricated the entire idea about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a gentleman by the name of Eusebius and in the 4th century AD these arguments were coming to the fore so he decided he would write an apologetic with regards to it. He wrote in his Demonstratoria Evangelica in 314 AD a satirical speech which imagines to have been delivered, being delivered when the disciples got together. So he's speaking from their, from a first-hand account from their perspective. This is what they said one with another. Let us band together, the speaker proclaims, to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances which we never saw. And let us carry the sham even to death. Let's do that even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping inflicted for no good reason? Let us go out to all nations and overthrow their institutions and denounce their gods. And even if we don't convince anybody, at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down on ourselves the punishment for our own deceit. Could you imagine the disciples doing that? So this is not like people today who die for what they don't know is a lie. And we see this, we see, we, see, we see people that do things like that, they fly aeroplanes into buildings, they, they, they blow themselves up in shopping malls and buses. These people don't know that they're dying for what they don't know is a lie. We're talking about the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked with him, who talked with him, who handled him, who were with him, who ate with him, who could see him, touch him. We're talking about these individuals and none of them survived that time in their lives. Well, apart from John. John wasn't without persecution either. Each one of them gave their lives for what they knew to be a lie. Does that sound possible? Does that sound probable? Does it sound possible to you that individuals who are contesting for the truth of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ who lift him up as the highest moral standard of living, would themselves become deceitful charlatans. Does that make sense to you? There's no logic behind any of that. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it doesn't stand to reason that such an idea can carry all the way through. They profess the reality of Jesus Christ as being risen from the dead. Well, what do you do with the persecutors of Christ? What do you do of, with those who had not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus. Remember? He mocked him. He says, well, why don't you go up to the feast? You know, there's no man that hides himself that shouldn't be known openly, you know. Why don't you go up to the feast? Well, James, 
the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to believe in Christ until the resurrection. And after that resurrection, not only did he establish the church in Jerusalem, but he also died by the sword because of his faith in his Lord and in his Saviour, who also happened to be his older brother. Incredible. What about Saul of Tarsus? He disputed and he, and he destroyed the entire church in Jerusalem. He scattered so many people. Matter of fact, the clothes of a young man by the name of Stephen was the clothes of those who, who, who martyred Stephen was, Stephen was laid at the feet of, the, of, of Saul of Tarsus, a, a passionate Pharisee who persecuted the church far and wide. He got letters and he was on his way to Damascus to receive more letters, to be able to persecute more Christians. And all of a sudden we have what we know today as the Damascus Road experience. The risen Christ had transformed his life and changed him. And he became one of the greatest evangelists in history, if not the greatest. 13, if not 14 of the letters that we have within the Bible are written by Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. These things are things that we don't often think about too much. We don't think of the consequences of four simple words, the Lord is risen. And perhaps there's a reason why we don't think of it like that these days. Mind bites. I'll call it mind bites. Because that's what we're in today. Where little snippets of our minds are being eaten away by mind bites, sound bites, video bites. Little things that actually amuse us or entertain us just for a snippet of time as we scour our phones as we thumb through these little things, getting our individual little dopamine fixes. We don't have time to look at the implications of anything. We don't have time to read a particular note of something that actually has a depth of meaning or has an impact. We just flick through them and we take nothing in. And our minds are slowly being eaten away, bitten away. We don't think of the implication of anything. And this is a real tragedy because we're seeing this time and time again today and we don't think of the consequences. The Lord is risen. What does that mean? The Lord is risen. What does that mean? There's so much being said within those four words. It doesn't take long to say it, but the implication behind it is astounding. The Lord is risen. Well, for the Lord to have risen, he must have died. But for the Lord to have died, he must have also been apparent. He must have lived. He must have been with it. The Lord, the Lord, God, dwelt with men? Is that, is that possible? And he died? Why would he die? How could he die? For what purpose did he die? And why did he rise? What was he showing? What was the demonstration behind all of that? We don't want to put these things together. And perhaps we can't today. Perhaps because we're so filled with little snippets of information that we're being fed momentarily and we're getting our little dopamine fix. You know what a dopamine fix is? So those people who take cocaine get a massive dopamine fix. And every single time you flick through your phone and you have a little thing on Instagram or on this, I know what it feels like, I've done it. Right? I know what it feels like. It's pretty addictive. It's pretty addi- you know what's really weird? This is what I find really weird. You find yourself flicking through it and because there's this law of diminishing returns, you, you don't get entertained as much by the next flick and the next flick and the next flick. But you're spending so much time in it, you've already invested all of this time. You're thinking, there's got to be a payday in a minute. You know, any minute, I need a return on my investment. So you keep flicking and flicking and flicking. And next thing you know, hours go by. 
And you stand up and you look and think, what did I do with my day? What did I do with my day? I could have read my Bible. Couldn't you? An astounding consideration. We're fixated with these little short hits rather than taking the wonderful return of just having a deep consideration of a fundamental truth that can transform and change our lives forever. The Lord is risen. Wow. These four words. These four words have been the subject of the greatest news in the history of the world. And it is these four words that have also been the object of the greatest enmity. There are no words in the languages of all the world that's seen in the context of the Bible that have seen or been the cause of both the greatest joy and the greatest controversy than these four words. The Lord is risen. These words change everything. They change the fundamental philosophy of life. They transform a life to mean, from meaninglessness to all of a sudden having meaning, from purposelessness to all of a sudden having purpose. They have an effect on the world's predicament and they also have an anticipation. There's anticipation behind those words. The Lord is risen. It means that death is not the end. And if the Lord can be as a man and die and rise from the dead, it means that death is not the end. Having those words as the underpinning of reality alters everything. And it certainly did for those men in the first century. It certainly did for the people who have experienced the wonderful love of the Lord Jesus Christ ever since. Certainly changed me, 29-year-old agnostic, didn't know God, didn't believe in God, didn't even know if a God existed. I, just, I was just having a good time. And to see this, this change that, that happened even in my own personal life that has endured for the last 25, 26 years, it's transformative even today. Changes lives. Changes lives. We went from death to life. All of a sudden, having no purpose to having purpose, having no reason to live, to all of a sudden having everything to live for. The Lord is risen. The world and the philosophy of the world today is being transformed because it's rejected the very purpose and the meaning of life, the author of life. And now there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no solution, and there is no future. This is where the world is at today. The world is ultimately going to, we're going to do the best thing we can within our own lives. We're going to eat and drink because tomorrow we die and we're going to hopefully leave some sort of a legacy for our children, for our family. But in the end, ultimately, the entire universe is going to die some sort of a heat death. There's no ultimate purpose for your life. There's no ultimate reason for your life. There's no ultimate meaning for your life. And you wonder why we need classes on self-esteem. This is the world today. The truth remains, the Lord is risen. Christ's death. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, says Jesus, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. For Christ to have risen, he must first have died. He must first have died. Yeah, this is the first point, but don't get distracted, all right? It's not going to be as long as the last ones. We talk about implication. 
The idea takes the cake that forms this, this ingredient that the Lord is risen. It's just part of it, that, that he had to have died. Just the idea that the creator of heaven and earth, the one by whom all things consist, both lived among us and died, brings us to one of the most profound considerations. For Christ to have died means that he first walked among us. In other words, God lived as man and this is just how it is presented within the Bible. Paul wrote, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. Turn your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John, the epistle of John. So go past all the gospel accounts. <coughs> go past the book of Hebrews, past James, past Peter. And you should see 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. And listen to what the Apostle John writes here. He writes that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. The very purpose of his writing was that your joy may be full, that you may know that you have eternal life. The very purpose of his writing was that your joy may be full. The implication that the Lord Jesus Christ had risen from the dead can only fill us with joy because it brings to us the hope that we need. The thought that God himself, as manifest through his son, that was born of a woman and he dwelt among us is the most astounding considerations of all to me and no doubt to many people. In ancient days, the people didn't think that way with regards to God. In ancient days, in the pagan days that were before this, there was a recognition that God is one. And that not only is he one, he is incomprehensible. The attributes of God are so astounding to be found in one individual alone, paganism began by breaking up the attributes of God into specific characteristics. So we have, instead of God who encompasses everything, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who is in control of all things, these things were incomprehensible to early people. So they broke him down into his many characteristics. He is the God of the earth. He is the God of the rivers. He is the God of the sky. He is the God of the air. He is the God of the planets. He is the God of earth. He is the God of animals. He is the God of healing. He is the God of money. He is the God of health. They broke him down into this polytheistic idea, the God of love, the God of war. Because this is the only way to be able to try and comprehend who God is. And we see this, this is the very reason why when Moses was come to the burning bush, remember Moses? You remember Moses? Moses was the one who was born in Egypt. 
They'd been there already nearly 400 years. The Israelite people got in there as a family of 70 and they left there as a nation of millions. And Moses led them out. But Moses was born there, was born in Egypt. In Egypt, it wasn't a monotheistic culture. It was a polytheistic culture. So they only knew the character of God by the names that the gods were called because the names had meaning. I don't know what your name means. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Maybe you were named whatever you were named because your parents thought, that's a cute name, I'll name him that, you know. But that wasn't the way they named people in the Bible. In the Bible, in ancient history, they named people according to a definition. They had a certain meaning to their names. So it was exactly the same when it came to the characteristics of God's this God would be identified by his name. <coughs> so Moses had asked God, what will you be known by? When I come to the people and I profess to them, you, um, and they ask me, what is his name? Who should I say sent me? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. That word, I am, tells the people everything that they need to know about God. I am, not I was, not I will be, I am. I am eternally present. I am always here. I have always been, I always will be. This is the definition of who I am. I am hath sent me unto you. Now the people would know exactly who this God is. He's everything. He's everything. We can't comprehend the nature of God. We can't comprehend his characteristics. The the polytheists back then couldn't comprehend him. So they break him up into all these different gods and they had all these different names. And here we have God identifying himself by three letters. I am. Wonderful, wonderfully simple is that. The interesting thing was that it was Jesus who testified to the people of the nation that he is the I am of the burning bush. In John chapter 8, verse 58. I wasn't going to read it. Just wanted to let you know that it was there. He spoke and he says that before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. The people knew exactly what he was talking about. You know how we know that the people knew exactly what he was talking about? What did they try and do? They tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. They knew and they believed that it was blasphemy. He was, compl- he was making himself out as if he was the I am of the burning bush. This is Christ. So he testified of himself. And that's why in our text it tells us in verse 27, the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Let's go to one of the prophets. Can we go to one of the prophets that he's talking about? Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's learn a little bit more about this Christ and the things that he suffered. And why he suffered them. Isaiah chapter 53. We'll just read from verse 4. We won't read the whole thing. It says there, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Christ is here. 700 years before he was walked these, these, this land, before he walked the shores of Galilee, before he climbed the mountains of Judea, this was written of him. This was written of him. These are the things that the prophets of old had spoken of concerning Christ. These are the things that he should suffer for himself. He didn't suffer these things for himself. He suffered these things for you and I. I mean, it's an astounding thing when you think about it, you know. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. I mean, with his stripes we are healed. Can you see the vicarious nature of this? He wasn't stricken for himself. He was stricken for you and I. It's our sins that put him on the cross. It's our sins that he came and he gave his life for. It's our sins. It's what we've done. And there's nothing that any of us has done that he has not died for and paid for. The penalty of our sins was upon Christ. That's the only way this works. This can't work any other way. You, you think it can be good enough for heaven? I mean, really, do you think it can be good enough to go to heaven? You've already broken his commandments. How do I know? Because he's written the commandments. We've got them in the Bible. There's ten of them. They're all there. Compare yourself to them. Compare where you stand. Think of yourself holding on to the last link in that chain of ten commandments, ten links that are there. Think of yourself holding on to the bottom one. How many need to break before you fall? Just one. Just one. We had sinned, not him. God had made man in his own image, yet man rebelled against God. Man turned away from his creator with no way back without a substitute. No way back. There's no way. There is no hope for man without Christ. There is no hope for man. Why? Because we've sinned. We've broken the law. We've broken his commandments. It doesn't matter what they are. You you think you're worse than anybody else? You're not worse than anybody else. You're the same as everybody else. When I compare myself to the commandments, I look at those and I look at them at how Jesus had interpreted them. He spoke about, about hating a person. Hating a person in that regard is akin to murder. So I've broken that one. When he spoke about adultery, looking at a woman with lust, I'm afraid that I've done that once or twice. I've committed adultery, according to the Scriptures. 
Matter of fact, I looked through all those Ten Commandments and when I compared them to what Christ says, I've broken them all. There's not one of them that I could stand there without any, with any confidence to say, yeah, yeah, I kept that one. Not one. Dishonoured my parents. I've done that. And these are there. These are written for you. These are not just written for me. They're written for you. There's an implication to the Lord Jesus Christ dying for you and I. If Jesus died, then we're all men dead. If the Lord died, then all of mankind was already dead. Why? Because he died for man, that man might live. I'm not making it up. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and just two verses there, verses 14 and 15. It says there, written by Paul, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. It's an interesting word, constraineth. It actually means motivate. It motivates us. It, it, it binds us and motivates us. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What did one of the prophets say? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is, this is the promised Messiah. This is the one that was promised to come. We have God's mercy here too. You're in 2 Corinthians, I think? Turn back to 1 Corinthians. God's mercy. <clears throat> I want to explain something to you that might help you have some understanding with respect to how... Jesus Christ can cover our sins. How can the death of Christ satisfy our fallen, broken, sinful nature and restore us to Christ and restore us to God? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is an incredible passage because I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter when you have an opportunity. Um, it's a lengthy chapter, I think it goes to 57 verses roughly. This speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ has not risen, then neither will we be risen. Anyway, he goes on in verse 1 to 4, we'll read. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. In, in, in law, in law, and um, I, I'm, I'm in the building industry. I've given this analogy a few years ago. And in the building industry, there's certain regulations, certain requirements, certain ways 
that you need to construct a particular frame or you need to uh, weatherproof a particular building or you need to satisfy certain provisions within the, within the law with regards to construction. And they're known as deemed to satisfy provisions. So they'll tell you ahead of time, this is how we want you to build it. But for one reason or another, you can't build it that way or you've elected to do it a different way. Then the way that you elect to do it has to be deemed to satisfy those original provisions. Does it make sense? Has to be deemed to satisfy. It's not... It's not exactly how it's designed to have been built, um, but it's deemed to satisfy and it passes and you can have it built, you can have it constructed. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was deemed to satisfy the provision of God for the salvation of mankind. Because you see, mankind cannot save himself. Mankind cannot be good enough. It doesn't matter what he does. He cannot be good enough. It doesn't matter how many times he tries to make amends, he cannot be good enough. It doesn't matter how many steps that he needs to climb. It doesn't matter how many books that he needs to read. It doesn't matter how many little old ladies he helps across the road. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. You can't undo what you've done. You can't honour your father after you've dishonoured your father. You've dishonoured your father. Can't be undone can't take back the words you tried it i've tried it can't 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 get them back in they've already gone out they've already been heard jesus christ his death on that cross to god the father was deemed to satisfy the provision that god had made for mankind to have fellowship with god you see you have to be perfect you have to be without sin There's only one individual in history that has ever lived without sin, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And sure, sure, you could sort of sit there and say, okay, well, that that, that makes sense. If, If Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, then he could have fellowship with the Father. Well, that's true. The Bible talks about that with regards to Daniel, speaks about that with regards to Job. If, if, you know, if they died, then they're okay, but they can't die for anybody else. Why? Because they're but men. So there has to be an infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to cover the blood and the sin of all of mankind and it's in that value that we have hope the death of christ for our sins was deemed to satisfy the law of god would not be followed as designed due to the fall but by substitution christ died for our sins according to the scriptures it deemed to satisfy the law Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill, Matthew 5.17. Romans 10.4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Romans 10.4. Galatians 4.4-5 says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. The opportunity is there for each one of us. Man has broken God's laws. And in case your memories might have left you, might have forsaken you, I was thinking about maybe I could try and write a list of things that somebody might have done. But the problem with that is this. 
The problem with that is if I write a list of the things that people have done, um, uh, I might impact somebody and convict someone's heart, but I might think that I've let somebody else off the hook. So I figured, well, I can't really do that. So let's just go to the laws. The first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Simple one. Pass that one. You've honoured nothing else, no one else other than the Lord. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That's the second one. That's the second commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I, I flunked that one big time. Matter of fact, every time you see a movie these days who blaspheme the Lord, you know what taking the Lord's name in vain is? It's, it's using the name of the God who gave you life and bringing it down into the gutter as a swear word. It's replacing the name of God or God himself in the place of a swear word. You ever done that? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's one in seven. It was a day that was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. That day was created for man. That we would have that rest one day in seven. Honour thy father and thy mother. I won't ask. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not... Thou shalt not steal. There's a lady, Italian lady, lovely lady, I love her. And, and I said, thou shalt not steal. You ever stolen anything? doesn't matter how big it is, even something small. You know, a paperclip, a grape in the supermarket. You ever stolen anything? Ah, ma, if he's going to he put me to hell because I steal a grape. You know? Fair enough, she's got a great point, but it's not the point. It's a presumption already within the heart that stealing the grape is, is, is satisfactory, is the right thing to do. It's not the grape. It's the heart that goes behind the grape. The sealing of the grape. Remember in the Bible, you've got it in the, I think it's in the book of Numbers or Exodus, could have been in Exodus, where there's a man who, who gathers sticks on the Sabbath day. And what do the people do? They don't know what to do with him. They, they, they take him and they go before the Lord and the Lord tells, him, tells them to stone him with stones because he gathered sticks on the Sabbath day. And we would sit there thinking, but it's all he did was gathered sticks on the Sabbath day. That's not a big deal. Well, hang on a second. Two million people abided in their tents obeying God's commandments. He walked by them all in direct defiance against God and did his will before he did God's will. Now think about the seriousness of the offence. It's the heart that goes behind it. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's lying. Don't lie. You lie, it condemns you. It's one of them. Thou shalt not covet. It's the only one of the ten that you can't do externally. It's one of the ten that you only do inside. You know, you could, you could look all holy and righteous and lovely on the outside, but this one here really condemns you from the inside. Covetousness, lusting after things that don't belong to you or belong to you. You can covet your own possessions, believe it or not. I don't know how you feel about any of those commandments, but let me make it clear to you that the breaking of them is sinful. Let me also let you know that in the breaking of them, your guilt is confirmed by the law of God and testifies as to where you stand before a holy God. So when he measures you according to his Ten Commandments, or will you be innocent or guilty of breaking them? Naturally, we would say that we are guilty. There's only one or two options. It's either heaven or hell and the guilty end up in hell. And this is the difficulty, this is the difficulty, this is the pain, this is the, 
the trouble that man has now before a holy God who created man in his own image to have fellowship with him. Man doesn't want to have fellowship with him. Ignoring the law is not a deem to satisfy provision, beloved. Ignoring it is not a deem to satisfy provision. Searing your conscience is not a deem to satisfy provision. Taking drugs to deal with the guilt, drinking yourself to sleep, entertaining yourself to death, running away, hiding in your house that not a single person can come and see you, um, none of these are deemed to satisfy provisions. None of them are. Attempting to make up for your sin is not a deem to satisfy provision. Following an ethical religious system is not a deemed to satisfy provision. Going to church is not a deemed to satisfy provision. Did you hear that? Going to church is not a de- You can't get more holy that way. Okay? You can't get more holy that way. Saying sorry for your sins. Feeling guilty for your sins. Promising that you will sin no more. None of these are deemed to satisfy. None of them are. The Bible makes it plain that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22 For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This was deemed to satisfy. This and this alone. And now it only requires your faith in him. You believe the gospel of Christ, you join in that salvation and in that hope that Christ did for you. It's a choice, you see, it's a choice, it's a voluntary choice. As I work towards closing this, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. wonderful wonderful passage in the bible that you might have now hope of christ romans chapter 3 verse 21 we'll read to verse 26 simply says this but now the righteousness of god without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of god which is by faith of jesus christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." You see, it's about him. It's all about him. It's always been about him. It's to declare his righteousness. Not yours, not mine. There's nothing about me that deserves heaven. There's nothing about me that God looked at and says, he's a good one, I'll save him. There's nothing about me that's deserving of any of that. It's to declare his righteousness. And have a look at the word propitiation. It says to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The word propitiation effectively means deemed to satisfy. It's deemed to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what that is. The risen Lord testified to the world 
of God's mercy. The last point and a short one, victory. I want to read a passage to you this morning and I want you to give it some consideration. It's not written by a godly man. It's not written by a man who was alive. He is now well and truly dead. It's known as the parable of the madman. Some of you may already know who wrote it. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran into the, gar- into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God. I am looking for God. As many of those who do not believe in God were standing together, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then? said one. Did he lose his way like a child? said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? They shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? he cried. I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it, is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as though an infinite, as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Some of you might recognize the parable of the, parable of the madman by Friedrich Nietzsche. It's contained in his book known as The Gay Science or also known as Joyful Wisdom. He wrote several books before this one. Beyond Good and Evil was one of them. Thus Spake Zarathustra was another one. That's the first place that you hear about the Ubermenscht or the Superman is found in that one. Our current novel, The Superman, the current superhero Superman, is actually based on Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. These books were written prior to this one and no doubt inspired this one. And after he wrote this book, he went on to write Antichrist and The Will to Power, from which it is understood Adolf Hitler found inspiration. This is your alternative, beloved. This is your alternative. Ideas have consequences. And this is an idea that was put forward by an individual struggling with his own sanity to be able to live life apart from God. Such notions inspired Richard Dawkins to write of the universe that has at bottom, quote, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. This is a quote from Richard Dawkins. We can see that ideas have consequences and those consequences play themselves out and they are playing themselves out today. But history and reality tell another account. The Lord is risen and he has transformed lives all across the world. 
It tells us that Christ has defeated death. It tells us that there is hope beyond the grave. It tells us that there is forgiveness with God who is anything but dead. God is risen. The Lord is risen. As a matter of interest, before that year was ended in 1887, after the publishing of the parable of the madman in his book, The The Gay Science, before that year was ended, Frederick Nietzsche himself went mad. And in 1888, one year later, was pronounced hopelessly insane. I think God's got a sense of humour. It's amazing how God deals with these individuals. It's amazing. The Lord is risen. The reality has implication for our lives. It tells us that there is more to live for than ourselves. It tells us that there is a hope and a joy to tell the world of. It tells us that we have an account that is true and that is sure. Turn your Bibles to the last passage, and I'm going to finish on that passage. 1 Corinthians 15. Remember I mentioned to you that the entire chapter speaks to the resurrection of Christ. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're just going to read the last few verses from verse 51. Remember here that Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to the Corinthian church. These are people who believe in the Lord, who know the Lord, who trusted in the Lord. This is not speaking about those who are not born again, who are not saved. Those who have not believed in Christ. This is speaking about those who have believed. And this is what he writes in verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He speaks about sleep. He speaks about death in Christ, dying in Christ, being dead in Christ. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. One of the greatest fears that people have today is the fear of death, dying. And it's fair enough. The Bible refers to death as the final enemy of mankind. And it is an enemy. And it is certainly an enemy. But there is a way to transform death from being an enemy to having victory in it and victory over it. Death has lost its sting. To those of you who know Christ, death has lost its sting. We look for it. We have no, no, no pleasure in the idea of death, no doubt. And yet we know that the end of this is a risen Lord that we are going to see and be with. But there are some who don't know Christ. And it's to you that I truly, truly plead. Seek Him out. The Bible says he, will be, he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. You don't know Him. You don't know where to find Him. Seek Him out. Do not stop seeking Him out until you find Him. You will see Him. You'll know Him if you search for Him with all of your heart, the Bible says. 
And this is the joy, this is the promise that we have within the Scriptures. And for those who seek Him, they will not be ashamed. They will be risen with Christ. And this is the joy that we have to look forward to. Until He comes. Maranatha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, dear God, we thank You. Thank You for this day. Thank You for a reminder that You are risen. And in this, dear Lord, we do rejoice. We have a word to tell, a hope to give to a world that is dying. And we ask and pray, dear Lord, that this purposeless world would find its purpose in Christ and that we may be able to impact even one person for all eternity. And I pray, dear Lord, that those who may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ would do so and do so now. We have no knowledge, dear Lord, of tomorrow. We have today and we have only today. We have only this very moment. I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would impact the hearts of many and that you would bless each one of us, dear Father, who have life in Christ with a vigour and a purpose to share the hope and the truth of Christ to all. We thank you, dear Lord, for this time and ask your blessing on its continuation of this day until we come together again in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.